Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Flyover Labs. Uh, today we have one of the greatest industrial product designers in the world right now, so we're quite lucky. Our guest, uh, Gadi Amit, started uh, his product design firm in 2000, which is uh, called New Deal Design, and they have worked with companies like Sling Media, Intel, Dell, and Microsoft. And, uh, which some of you might be wearing right now, Gadi and his team uh, the, designed the Fitbit. So you're taking a little Gotti with you everywhere you go, <laughs> or at least some of you. So Gotti, uh, thanks for being on the show. We definitely appreciate it. Thank you very much. And so first, you know, let's go over your background and more t more details around New Deal design. But I also like to try to get into your brain a little bit and just th and how do you think about design and technology? Because uh, some of the products you make are quite, uh, you know, how you just make it so accessible for people, I guess. And that's, I'm hoping we can all learn a little bit of how you, how you actually make that happen. Um, so first, uh, you know, what was your background before starting New Deal Design in 2000? So, I mean, my background is um, I'm an industrial designer by training. I um, grew up in Israel to a family of two architects and came to the States early 90s. Uh, worked in a company called Frog Design and uh, went up through the ranks there up to like VP level or something like that and towards uh, the end of the 90s um, starting um, you know the dot uh, com and the dot bomb um, <laughs> decided that <laughs> um, I might as well do a, a smaller a much smaller uh, studio based um, design agency that has all the capacities of the very large agencies, but with a lot more, um, let's say, focus and uh, personal approach. Interesting. And so growing up, were you, I read someplace that you were into Legos, like your dad, but uh, we're also... Oh, yeah. <laughs> we're, yeah. Were you also yeah, curious? I, yeah. I, yeah, I used to build just about anything on the planet. A lot of them were kind of mechanical contraptions. I was into cranes. Huh. And with Legos, you you really have to know the limits of the connection between blocks because as I start building them big, <laughs> and some of these were about six feet tall, Wow. Uh, there's a point where they, they collapse. So <laughs> they really had all sorts of tricks and how to put them together so they're not uh, falling apart. Uh, yeah. So I, I was kind of a, a, a Lego magician when I was a kid. A Lego magician. That's another whole podcast we we can bring up. We yeah. call it the Lego magician. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so uh, uh, when you first started New Deal Design, you know what type of product projects and products do you guys start working on initially? Um, did you have a niche or do you, were you working on lots of different things? So we uh, started the studio in 2000, as you mentioned, and at that time uh, PCs were still in vogue and <laughs> things like uh, home media consumption was still in vogue. Um, so a lot of the work we've done in the early years dealt with um, – either mp3 players at the beginning uh, for a company called rio uh, it was actually kind of big before the ipod killed it and uh, we've done um quite a lot of pc programs at the beginning um including for companies like dell and so on 
And slowly but surely, we kind of gravitated towards the more handheld, the more personal. And I think one of the biggest, um, probably the most um, important project we've done in the first two years was um, for Palm. We created a, kind of the entry-level Palm called Palm Zire that uh, was our first um, gold design award and the first uh, product of the year, something that really kind of um, uh, succeeded very well with the uh, consumer market and actually with uh, women at the beginning um, that saw it as a very appealing product. Interesting. So how did you make the jump from like PCs to more like you mentioned the handheld devices? Like how, how, That first client who said, yeah, you know, you can help us build this handheld device. How did you convince them? to kind of make that leap or was it more gradual? Is there other projects in between? You know, with, uh, with Palm, it was a personal connection that got us in there, but then obviously we needed to do a lot of persuasion and so on. Um, I think a lot of the sensibilities, um, I had earlier on for softer forms, for softer materials, uh, were presented through the design work and were actually pointing towards um, something less techy and I would say more um, tangible, more tactile, uh, colors that are different than the grabby uh, gray and black that typically uh, the tech world liked to use at those days. And... That's more or less a part of the DNA of a new delivery scenes to innovate not only in form, but also in the tactility and the color material and finish of the product. Interesting. And has that kind of evolved over time? Like your, yeah, your vision? Yeah, you know, um, we've done some interesting things through the years. We persuaded Dale to do uh, a bamboo cover uh, PC in um, something around 2008 or something like that. Uh, we're still dealing with natural materials like wood uh, today. Um, again, the sensibilities are still there and a lot of the work we do for Fitbit has this type of um, uh, thinking about um, not only form and function, but also the um, the feel of the material and the diversity of appeal, meaning that there's not only one appeal in market, there are few and so on, and you need to um, appeal to different tastes uh, with a kind of a, a common ground, um, yet kind of being somewhat uh, open for diversity in your design language. Hmm, interesting and, and when somebody comes to you with a, a an idea or a product and you start the design process uh, like who how do you know who you're designing for i mean i'm guessing the customer ha has an idea of their target customer but are you also designing for your own sensibilities and their staffs or how do you uh combine what's right for the market versus what do you think is right you know, it's it's a very interesting question. I've been asked this a lot, and there's uh, this chasm uh, to some degree between the prescribed uh, best practice professionally and what really actually work in reality. So the, the prescribed best practices typically deal with market research, 
and sometimes with uh, rounds and focus groups and so on. And these are rather mechanical um, um, uh, explorations, and they tend to be distilled into documents that are listing features and wish lists or needs and so on, or demographics, and, and they don't really present um, the designers with a clear, coherent point of view. Uh, what we do at New Deal, we add that other piece of it, which is the I call it kind of the soft intelligence. This is the hmm. the point of view that connects to the human, if you wish, the lovability of the product. And these are usually little uh, nuggets of of um, wisdom of life that people bring with them. Uh, we have a very diverse group here of designers. Um, you know, I'll give you an example, you know, the first Fitbit, uh, we really worked on many ways to attach it to the human body. And one of the nuggets that came from the uh, women in the team here was that most of them will probably put them, uh, put it in their, uh, in their bras, uh, something that probably won't come up in any focus group or any marketing research. And that became... I guess the most successful attachment of wearable ever. <laughs> um, and I think at the beginning where about 60% of the attachments were, um, it was sanitized for professional uh, use was a BFC bra front and center. Interesting. And yeah, I remember reading that somebody called your products and I'll put links on them because everyone should see them. And I mean, I think they called it almost designs cuddly which I don't know if you like that or not, but I like the idea that somehow you're taking this the very advanced technology and making it accessible and usable by people, which is a very tough. I thing think to it's do. a very it's a very important uh, quality for cutting edge products. You see, any innovative product today need to go through a very rigid barrier. It's the threshold of acceptability. Essentially, why would I do something new as a consumer? You know, why would I adapt to a new technology? Why would I buy it? Why would I adjust my lifestyle to it and so on? And this is where the emotional factor comes in. And this is what I'm talking about, the lovability, the, the, the ability to, to connect uh, technology in an emotional way to how users live their lives. And this is something I think New Deal is doing phenomenally well. And uh, that is the motivation of people to start something new uh, rather than continue with the old ways. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So how do you do you ever go out and uh, seek your own clients and see them with ideas? Or uh, do people find now you should just come to you? Uh, nowadays, um, the vast majority of our, cli of our clients come to us. Uh, we've been very fortunate. Uh, we've established a uh, you know, track record that um, allows a lot of people to know about us. And also, um, they come and knock and say, hey, we've got this problem. Can you help? Every once in a while, I, every once in a while I'm actually uh, pursuing some uh, unique uh, market, and over there we put 
together some point of view and we'll try to persuade uh, people in that market and, and, and see if uh, they like to work with us or not. Interesting. And, and how do you, do you vet clients? Like if somebody comes to you with an idea and uh, you, you seem to have a, a number of, uh, I don't know if home runs is the right word, but successful products. So obviously probably with each product release, you want it to do well. Um, you know, do you actually vet your clients before they, you start engaging with them? Uh, or, or, <laughs> uh, I wish I knew how to do it. You know? right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we many times had, um, we've been talking internally how to vet clients and how to know what are the, um, you know, the, the criteria to, to, for the best successful project. And it's interesting it's very, very difficult to know that. Um, sometimes uh, the two guys in a banjo team, you know, guys who just came out of the woodwork, you know, they, they have nothing. They are um, so consumed and committed and ready for the fight to really bring this product to market. At the same time, very large organizations may have best technology, best practices, and so on and so forth, but um, someone high up at the organization decide to cancel the project for a variety of strategic reasons. So um, it's kind of a sixth sense, I don't know. And, you know, we've been hurt before with uh, beautiful projects that uh, got nowhere. At the same time, uh, we've got uh, quite a few people who started, uh, as I tend to say two guys in a banjo and became a very, very nice success story. Yeah. yeah hopefully for a Fitbit, you got the equity instead of cash. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I got both. <laughs> okay, good. All right, good. <laughs> um, no, I mean, and I think that, uh, right. You don't know exactly what's going to work and what's not going to work. Um, it's, as I said, it's a expense. I don't know. I'm, I'm very optimistic. So I tend to, I tend to give a lot of uh, committed intelligence, good people a chance, and and we put all the effort into it and try to uh, make it happen. And I gotta say, I mean, a lot of these ideas get to be um, elevated and changed and morphed to a different, higher ground when uh, we work together. So. Um, I really cherish the opportunity these people uh, bring to New Deal. At the same time, New Deal brings a significant contribution that make um, uh, those stories um, and uh, those companies successful as well. And, and what if a client comes and you kind of have a little competing competing visions on what the product should look like and how it should uh, function um, and how it should look? How how do you balance the you know the the inventor or the client's needs with uh, what you think is right for the market and for this product. So you, you bring a very interesting point, which is, you know, the, the, the importance of getting to know each other. And, and when we start an engagement, uh, before we really sign the, the, the dotted line, there is a um, very good discussion we're going to have about uh, the work of New Deal in the past, the philosophy, how to address the problem, how to address the market, how 
essentially to work together. So typically, once we get to work together, we have a very good understanding of each other and and clients, especially today, uh, New Deal's success, they understand that um, there is a reason why we do certain things. And I'm being very honest about um, the, the philosophy behind New Deal and what we are interested to do. And if the clients agree with that, uh, most likely we'll have very little conflicts later. That's a uh, yeah, it's a smart way to handle it up <laughs> up front. You put, yeah, definitely makes sense. Um, so, like I said, I wanted to get in your head a little bit more. I mean, you've you've opened up your head a little bit, which is awesome. And uh, but I, I'm curious if somebody, let's say, a couple of uh, researchers from Stanford came to your office and said, "Hey, we got this technology that will you know detect uh, um." glucose just through like a ring on your finger you know can you design it for us and so that's the first meeting you know and maybe this isn't the best example and you can give use a different example but you know what, what immediately comes to your mind or how do you handle that first meeting what questions do you ask and are you thinking about the um you know how are they going to market this and how is it going to function are you thinking about you know the fda or what what all goes through your mind in that uh kind of initial meeting all that and <laughs> and some <laughs> so, uh yeah you know it's we what, what i do typically in a first meeting is um i'm kind of surrounding the perimeter of the problem so i'm kind of walking around talking about uh the technology aspects uh, issues of for instance, connectivity, uh, interaction between the physical and the digital. Nowadays, we do a lot of um, digital design here as well. And then we move into aspects of um, usability, including like battery and so on and so forth. And then we go into marketing and cost and, and, and pricing and brand, which is also something we deal a lot with. And then we start dealing with the process itself and the um, uh, different um, stages in the process. Uh, we have an engineering team and uh, whether we need to build prototypes or are these prototypes to go to FDA or not. And essentially, 360 degrees of all the story uh, that revolves around the invention and how they want to uh, bring it to fruition or to market. And that's a very interesting uh, discussion. And essentially, we are uh, debriefing and rebriefing each other. So at the end of that meeting, that typically takes something like two hours or so, we have a very common ground, a very, very good common understanding of what could be done possibly and and that's where we actually start writing that brief in a, into a proposal of how to move forward interesting yeah you guys do not mess around that first meeting that i mean that's good you cover a lot of bases just to see i mean do, do you have some yeah else? yeah we we definitely we there's quite a lot of things we want to put on the table and discuss and so on so we have a as i said we we need to have a very good understanding of each other and i i tend to uh, look at uh these day uh, these um, meetings very much like dating you need to get to know who's the other side quite quickly 
No, that makes sense. And do you find that sometimes in this, after his first meetings, people go back, scratch their heads and like, oh, I guess we're not ready, or you know, we're not ready for the market. The technology has to be improved. You know, the you know, it's not, sometimes, not, or, sometimes, but you know, in most cases, uh, people come to us. They already have a very concrete idea of what they um, want to achieve. And sometimes we change the timeline for that. Sometimes we give them alternative routes, how to get to market faster, maybe in lower cost. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the interesting thing about what we do today in New Deal. I call it technology design, but effectively we are uh, looking at products inside out and, and 360 degrees around. Essentially, we have the capacity to understand what are the economic factors in the product development, what are the technical factors, how we could accelerate or decelerate sometimes processes in the best way, and how to build the brand in the most effective way and so on. So there is a really a, a treasure trove of information um, among the leadership uh, team here at New Deal that could be uh, really assisting uh, young startups. Interesting. And so you're, you're dealing with a lot of the IoT products and a fair amount in the health space. Um, what are your thoughts on have you, um, on the FDA and the regulatory pathway for wearables and how the FDA is handling, if you have any thoughts <laughs> on that? Uh, well, uh, you mentioned two, two, I would say, coin terms that have been thrown around a lot, IoT and wearables. Uh, wearables are kind of a subset of IOTs. Um, IOT devices at home are a big topic. We're dealing with multiple aspects of these. Um, there is security issues. There are entertainment issues, a variety of uh, touch points. And the most important thing about IoT at home today is interoperability, the ability of all these connect, uh, different devices to talk to each other and to be integrated into um, a seamless, and this is really strong operative, seamless uh, system. Uh, currently, uh, there are a lot of issues there. There is no good solution yet. Um, each device comes with an app. Uh, the digital domain is a lot more um, disintegrated than it seems. And actually, this is a huge barrier today, which is the um, actual digital side of uh, IoT. On the wearable side, I think you pointed out to uh, a very interesting phenomenon. A lot of these um, sensors are now becoming more and more I'll call it medically ready. They're not quite there, and uh, a lot of that uh, process is relying on the FDA. I have my personal opinion that sooner or later, um, there is going to be some kind of a semi- or quasi-medical categorization by the FDA. Um, There is a point where you need to really ask yourself, what is the greater good? Uh, achieving perfect accuracy uh, across all uh, conditions and terrains or having a, a very good accuracy that is good enough for the user to know that something might be wrong and they should visit a real doctor in a real doctor office and 
be tested by real medical quality, medical grade uh, equipment. I am at this point that you know I, I I see I'm kind of a liberal and 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 progressive on that level. I think that this in itself, this declaration of hey something is wrong, you should step into a doctor's office. This in itself is a huge value, and I'd rather have devices that uh, could tell me that, even though they are less than medically grade uh, devices. This is to me currently the biggest uh, difficulty in this whole terrain between FDA and its responsibility to uh, medical quality and medical efficacy and the consumer electronics industry that has its uh, responsibility on disseminating, you know, cool new technologies to a vast uh, amount of people. No, that's a good answer. Yeah, it's a it's a complex answer for sure. And you know, like, like to your point with the wearables, well, if it helps diagnose some type of a issue um, that somebody's having, that's, that's better than what people have now, which is pretty much nothing. <laughs> and so it might create some false, yeah, negatives, I, I, false positives. I, but yeah, and I take note of the word diagnose. I don't I don't seek to have them diagnose. I I I, I seek these devices to have one little red flag that says something is wrong, you should talk to your doctor. Yep. More like okay, more, and more this is not diagnosis. This is just raising a flag, and I think this is a lot to a lot of people. No, you're exactly right. Well, and I think I think we have about a minute left or so. Um, do you yeah. do you work with clients? It's okay, we could take it a few more minutes. Okay. Just All FYI, right. I mean, okay. All right, well, I got a few more minutes, but... Wait, I won't take a, I won't take too much of your time. Definitely appreciate it. Uh, so, do you work with clients uh, outside of California? Like, we work with clients long distance. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. We have um, clients and and potential clients uh, all over the world. Actually, okay. Okay. And in Asia, in Europe, and you know, yeah, all over so Middle how, East too. So, how do you work with clients? Let's say in Asia. Like, do you have it? An initial and in-person meeting at some point. Um, I was all, I was also curious about the the use of like AR augmented reality for you guys. I can see down the road that can make you your job a little easier too. <laughs> well, you know, I do fly a lot, okay. and frankly speaking, when you really want to connect and have very good understanding of each other, you need to be face to face in the same room. Uh, drinking coffee or beer and really connect uh, person to person. And, and, you know, the interesting thing about um, the technology business it is obviously very dynamic, involving a lot of risks, a lot of passions, and you really need to um, deal with the personal factor. And and for me, that's been a revelation to some degree. And um, you know, it tend, there's a there's a tendency to pretend as if the professional world is kind of codified. Um, it's a stale or sterile type, uh, but it's not. It, it's involving very sophisticated people with very complex motives and very passionate um, argumentation. 
So there's no shortage of uh, personalities and the need to connect to these personalities. And this cannot be done uh, by any VR or remote, even though we use a lot of the remote presence technologies like Skype and so on. Uh, it's still very much uh, locking eyes in the same room and, and talking uh, for real, so to speak. Interesting, yes. That well, right. Everyone thinks that the AR VR is gonna change everything, but like you said, it's sometimes you have to get in the same room to make things happen and get on the same page. Um, since since I have you just for a, a couple more minutes, I had one question I was curious about was when you start a project. Well, you know, you talked about designing for the customer, try, trying to have the customer fall in love with the product. I think some place you mentioned Lust, which I, I like a lot. And uh, <laughs> uh, so how it, every time you design a product and it doesn't work out quite like you thought it would, do you look back and say, oh, we should have seen that? Or it's more it, it, each time is it kind of a, a crapshoot? Or how do you learn from, like, I won't say failures, but how do you learn to keep improving each iteration, each new product that you come up with? Especially in this, uh, you, you bring a very interesting point. Uh, I think um, even though Noodle has been uh, really successful in design and our clients are largely successful, we have our share of failures. And uh, from that um, came realization in my mind that is uh, somewhat profound about the industry and so on. Most of the projects at start, assume some set of parameters about the future. So if we start a project today and people, um, let's say, assume the product will hit the market in two years, there is some assumption about what is going to be the price point, what is going to be the, um, the passion or the interest of the public at that point. And by the way, some of our products are not for consumers or for commercial use, but never mind. There is a, a whole set of assumptions regarding the future. And the problem with these assumptions is that they're uh, not always uh, true. And it's not because the people who assume them are not intelligent enough or haven't done research enough and so on. The problem is very much about this term, future. Uh, there, the future is dynamic, and I think we are living in an era that is exceptionally dynamic. So from all that, I uh, actually, three or four years ago, um, thought through this whole issue and came up with few um, nuggets that are guiding our activity today. The first is a statement that I'm telling any uh, potential clients right from the get-go, that the only actionable future is 18 months away. It means that actionable future is future you should know enough about and you're capable of knowing enough about and is more or less stable. This is about 18 months away. And that's uh, quite a profound um, uh, timeline because typically it takes about a year to bring a product to market. Hmm. That means that we need to act uh, very uh, vigorously and aggressively to get the product as soon as we can because no matter what we'll do, the future is going to change. Uh, 
So we need to act uh, relatively fast. And from there, we actually redesigned our um, product development process to have a very compressed uh, upfront that is doing a lot of vetting and a lot of creative tricks at the very beginning of the product project for around four to six weeks to really sort out all the alternatives, not only from a stylistic perspective, but also from economic and technology perspectives and so on, and bring really good alternatives to um, a decision-making forum after six weeks or so in which we then decide what the project is going to look like. And only then we start a, a typical linear process. So if I kind of do like a 360 circle around what I said now, my conclusion from some failure in the past was that the assumptions taking about the future would turn out to be wrong because the future changed. And the reason the future is changing is because we are living in a very dynamic era. And out of that, I outline 18 months as more or less the barrier or the horizon in which you could more or less see in each market what's going to happen. And that means that you really need to accelerate uh, time to market in product development. And you also need to vet a lot of options very early in the process to make sure you're actually acting correctly for that uh, uh, short uh, horizon uh, line. And and by options, that could be a number of things, whether it's the target market or design or what would the... Yeah, everything. Uh, yeah. One of the things is that, you know, we have a very contrarian uh, philosophy regarding... Uh, <laughs> Uh, product development, so whatever we are being brought to deal with, we always ask the question of why not, why not the opposite way, hmm. and we do that maybe 50 times a day, and from these, uh, we sometimes come with really unique solutions, and Sometimes we have to do something completely different than what the client um, imagined at first. And obviously, this is a dialogue with the client, so we do it with full transparency, and clients come to realize uh, of a new... They, they come to, to know a new point of view that is actually more effective and maybe saving money, maybe saving time to market, or maybe strategically positioning them in a in a better way. Huh. Interesting. Uh, do you do you have an example of where the the why not contrarian contrarian um, perspective kind of changed the direction of a product off the top of your head? If you don't, that's okay. But you know, we've done a few years back the Lightro camera. Yeah. Um, at that point, the prevailing uh, view earlier on at Lytra was that it should be looking like a camera. And through the initial process, uh, we discovered some constraints and some uh, aspects that are unique to Lytra that uh, were um, putting this uh, concept, we call it scope, which is kind of a non-camera. I would call it more of an imager um, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a better first product to market. 
and and that was uh, the product um, they shipped first. Huh. Yeah, that that camera is beautiful. Um, yeah, thank you. Well, I think that's a we could keep going, but I think that's a pretty good place to end right there. And uh, Gotti, definitely appreciate your time and getting your insights is really interesting. Thank you very much. And um, yeah, and uh, if you have more questions, feel free to um, call again. And um, <laughs> it, it's been a pleasure and I'd love to talk more if there is any opportunity. And that's it. All right. Sounds good. Yeah, I will. I'll definitely take you up on that offer. <laughs> okay. All right. Thanks, Excellent. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.